Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Shmini this morning. We are in uh, the Pasha where in the beginning we have the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu. We unpack that in certain years, but because we are in the third year of the triennial cycle and we're looking t- towards the end of the Pasha, uh, it's really kind of divided into two, not so easily into three. Uh, and it's divided into that episode, and the one that follows it immediately is this one about categories of animals that we can eat and ones that we can't eat. Let us begin then around chapter 11, looking at these commandments. We're just going to read for a bit. So we get the feel of uh, the Levitical cadence and writing and the style in which a lot of this is presented. 623 in the green. 637 in the red. 637 in the red. Can you read it? Mm-hmm. Great. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the Israelite people thus. These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hooves, with clefts through the hooves, and that chews the cud, such you may eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hooves, you shall not eat. The camel, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves. It is impure to you. The demon, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, it is impure for you. The hare, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, it is impure for you. And the swine, although it has true hoofs, with the hoofs cleft through, it does not chew the cud, it is impure for you. You shall not eat of their flesh or touch of their carcasses, they are impure for you. Go on. These you may eat of all that live in water. Anything in water, whether in the seas or in the streams, that has fins and scales, these you may eat. But anything in the seas or in the streams that has no fins and scales, among all the swarming things of the water and among all the other living creatures that are in the water, they are an abomination to you, and an abomination for you they shall remain. You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall not abominate their carcasses. Everything in water that has no fins and scales shall be an abomination for you. Go on. The following you shall abominate among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, and the black vulture. The kite, falcons of every variety, all varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, hawks of every variety, the little owl, the cormorant, and the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, and the bustard. The stork, herons of every variety, the hoopoe, and the bat. All winged swarming things that walk on fours shall be an abomination to you. But these you may eat among all the winged swarming things that walk on on fours. All that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. Of these you may eat the following. Locust of every variety. Yay! (laughs) All varieties of bald locusts crickets of every variety, and all varieties of grasshopper. But all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination for you. All right, so are we getting the sense of how the rhythm of this goes, right? Category, then the characteristics within that category, and then examples of actual species that either does fit the category or doesn't fit the category or looks like it might fit the category, but if you look closely, it doesn't. So um, that, that is what continues. And, it, and let's go all the way to the end of Chapter 11. Right? So let's go to verse uh, 44. Of chapter 11. And by the way, all those things so far you can see. Nachon. These are all things where you could look. Discern. Above. Right, you didn't have to know the name of the animal. Nachon. Well, kind of. <laughs> Nachon. 44. 44. For I, the Lord, am your God. You shall sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourselves impure through any swarming thing that moves upon the earth. 
For I, the Lord, am he that brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Go on. These are the instructions concerning animals, birds, and all living features that move in water and all creatures that swarm on earth. For distinguishing between the impure and the pure, between the living things that may be eaten and the living things that may not be eaten. All right. Given this paragraph that we've just read, which is kind of a summary of everything that we've gotten in specific, talk to me about what this paragraph tells us, these laws about what we can eat and what we can't eat. What are they about? According to the Torah itself. Okay? So, holiness. What else? Purity. Purity. Okay. We say non-abomination. Non-abomination. Right? Um, And how do we achieve, according to this paragraph, how do we achieve holiness and purity? Avoiding. Okay, so not just avoiding. Following instructions okay. distinguishing yes distinguishing like <clears throat> Havdalah that's the word that's used it's from that same Shoresh it's from that same root that we are to distinguish between the pure and the impure we are to distinguish behaviors that make us holy or don't lead to holiness, mm-hmm. right? There is nothing stated here that says there's anything wrong with the swine. Nothing. It says it doesn't chew its cud or have a split hoof, and therefore it is unclean to you. Doesn't mean to the Egyptians. Doesn't mean to the Bartholonians. It doesn't mean, right, to the folks who live in Venice. For y'all, Israel, it's considered impure. And you, so you can't partake of it, right? We have this huge reaction, don't we, to pork, right? Because for so long, people have been willing to, to give their ultimate, you know, to pay the ultimate price, not to eat treif when they're being forced to do that. But it's not about the pork, right? It's not about the meat. What is it about? It's about having understood for so long that the way towards holiness and purity for us is to make distinctions between what we will do and what we won't do, what we'll consume, what we won't consume. That is a holy life. And taken to the extreme... I believe truly that is the core of a holy life, isn't it? What should I say? What should I not say? Distinguishing between people I want to hang out with and people who might be not such a good influence. Just saying. Um, we, <laughs> we, <laughs> we make distinctions. Lahavdil, <laughs> right? And in, there, there's, a, there's a modern Hebrew expression that when, if you want to say... Um, let's say Bert was comparing himself to Moses. We would never do that, God forbid, right? Never. So, never. so what we say is, you know, I feel in, the, in my life that this is kind of like with Moses, lahavdil. You say lahavdil. Like, to make a very clear distinction between me and Moses. Right? I'm not trying to suggest for one second I'm anything. Right? So when you're drawing a parallel, you can say lahavdil. Like, I, I know it's very, very, very different, but the situation is kind of the same. So, because distinction for us is critical. Where is the, why is this foundational? How do we know differentiation is, is absolutely at the core? What narrative tells us that back? Creation. Creation. Creation is all about distinction. So for the ancient Near East, for our tradition in the ancient Near East, distinction is what leads to order and to the world standing on the foundations right, of, of things that are stable. When you start mixing stuff, we have problems. 
right? And when we get the flood narrative, what is that story? The waters from above and the waters from below meet. There's a mixing and that wipes out creation. So, and God differentiated between light and dark and called the light day and called the dark night. So God makes a distinction and pulling those things apart, teasing those things apart, it's how the world stands. So that holds for the ancient Israelite worldview. It also holds in large part for the rabbinic worldview. They are taxonomists. They are very interested in categories and in lists, right? The, and anything that crosses between them makes the rabbis very nervous. So we, you'll notice we get ritual around these liminal places that are neither this nor that. We get a lot of ritual at dusk, right? It's not day. It's not night. That's scary, right? Like that, that's really, you need stuff around those times. When you are between uh, the death of a loved one and burying them, right? It's a very intense time for the rabbis. Um, Havdalah. We make a distinction right at the end of Shabbat to also bless the work that we're going to go do in the week. For us, it's a good thing. Making distinctions is a good thing. Differentiation is a good thing. Discernment, if you want to take it to the values level, is a good and important thing. It is expressive of, or the only way to get really to, holiness and purity and the other thing that's, I think, important to know about this, meaning it's not kosher for y'all, but it's fine for somebody else, is that in distinguishing and in making distinctions, we thereby become a distinct people. Right? It is not that the swine is bad, so you have to avoid it. It's not because mixing meat and milk, you, if you drink milk and then you try to eat meat, you can't really digest it, and so it's bad for your health. It's like, no, no. This is about categories of what we as a people can eat to express an awareness of wanting to be holy and connected to the divine and connected to each other and connected to our neighbors and our ancestors. That's what this is about, so that we remain distinct as a people. And that's what it's been about for our whole history. Anyone who wants to tell you it's about health? <laughs> Ridiculitis. Um, so, now, if you have the categories <clears throat> of permitted, right, of ways to eat that bring us towards holiness and purity, the opposite, so what's the language used here in Leviticus for the opposite of that? Abomination. And I love the verb. Here are the things among the birds that you shall not abominate. I love that. I challenge everybody to use abominate in a sentence in the coming week. But not to your child. But not to your child. Although... There are some pretty abominable <laughs> things. Um, so, abomination, this word in Hebrew is sheketz. Sheketz. T-S, right? Or Z, however you want to transliterate it. Sheketz. And it comes from the Akkadian word. Remember Hebrew is a language built on Akkadian and Sumerian. The Akkadian root uh, for the, or cognate for this is shakatsu, to be of bad appearance or detestable. Um, we also get the word to'eva. To'eva is another word that connects this idea. I don't print very well. Um, to'eva is another word. So sheketz and to'eva, this idea of abomination. Why am I going to talk about abomination, do you think? It's used in a lot of other places. <laughs> it's used in other places, <laughs> in isn't it? Case. Right? And it's used by lots of people who love to quote the Bible. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. 
Lots of people love to quote Leviticus and they love to go to this word. It's an abomination before the Lord. Indeed, there's lots of stuff that's listed as being abominable. All right. So let's be, I want to be very clear. It's very important to me, this word, um, right? Particularly as a lesbian, this, this word is one of my faves. Um, <laughs> this word refers to behaviors that are considered cultic. They are cultic, they are dietary, and as we know, they are sexual. All of these are about cult. Abomination is about a breach in doing what cultic practice demands. Okay? Cult as in the foreign people who used to do all kinds of sexual and... As in the ancient Israelite cult. Oh. So there's a relationship to what other people were doing that influences the ancient Israelite cult. So, so what is that? If ancient Israel thinks to be holy, to be pure, to be distinctive, we don't do what they do. That's how you distinguish yourself. You don't have a Christmas tree in the living room. I know some people do. I'm just saying. I got called on that the other day. So, um, But the idea is that's one of the ways you know this is a Jewish house. We don't do that cut down a pine tree and put it in your den thing. We don't do that. So that, that becomes a marker of who we are is what we don't do. So ancient Israel looks around and sees fertility rites and goes, mm, not so much, mm-hmm. right? That is not normative for us in terms of how we live a life of holiness, how we live a life of um, care in how we share intimacy, right? And you, to live a life of holiness, you need to live in line with what is the cultic understanding of that? It is normative. What's normative? Heterosexual relationships. It is not to involve any of that in your worship. No. that No. Right? And every time we see that in Torah, it goes super bad. Right? Think golden calf. Right? So that's what they do. You don't do that. Most likely, there was a pig roasting festival. <laughs> To one of the neighboring gods. They do that. You don't do that. There's lots, you know, there's a theory that they, they used to take as a fertility rite. Um, boiling, a, a seeding a, a fetal kid in its mother's milk and womb, like in the, in the womb, and then eating it. Um, ancient Israel went, No. Thou shalt not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. That's just, Israel went, Ugh, no, we don't do that, right? So sometimes it's, right? And sometimes it's just a tree in the house. Who cares? There's nothing wrong with a tree in the house. It's what it signifies, and it's how we remain distinct as a people to Dafka not do that. That's what this word means. That's all this word means. That's it. Doesn't mean that lightning's going to come. No, it does not. Well, it could, but it's because you've broken the cultic rights. Or, you know, <laughs> lightning happened to get you. Um, so this word gets loaded in our culture with meaning that's about ethics. There is no implied ethical anything in abomination. Nothing. Think taboo. There are rules, and past that, right, taboo doesn't mean you, you, you lie, you steal, right? You, taboo, like, already, you, it implies this kind of magical, right, you know, like walking under a ladder, you know, like a black, you know, there, there are things that, are, that we get that upset the, the way things are supposed to go for everything to go well. So it's normative and comfortable. So, sort of. 
Because no, that's my point. Is that there are some things that that you want to keep in their place that because it's normative and conventional that needs to be. You don't want to cross. So there's a theory that fins and scales. That's what you can eat from the water. Why? Because anything else, like lobsters, they live in the water, but they can crawl up on the land. That makes us nervous, right? If it lives in the water, it should live in the water. <laughs> if it walks on the ground, it should walk on the ground. And they should, like, switching categories gets into that really tricky, nervous place. Yeah? So we don't use the word bad and good here. Correct. That is really important. This does not mean bad. Unless you want to associate bad with not making good choices around how to live a life of holiness and purity and distinction. Yes, sweetie. But you said that, like, don't mix the categories like a crab goes on land, but sharks have fins, but they don't have scales. Where would that be? So it's not kosher, right? Kind of that same thing. It's kind of like an animal, not really a fish. Can you see how they get, how it blurs the distinction? A fish? Like, fish should have fins and scales. And if it doesn't, what's a shark? It's not really a fish. <laughs> right? It's not, right? Dolphins, you know, they're not really fish. Um, so for, can, you know, there's this sense of, you know, so that's one theory, is that things that cross those boundaries start, uh, that's in the no-can-do category. Okay? Yeah. The, 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 in Leviticus 19, the sexual prohibition, mm-hmm. they're not bad and good. I always sort of assumed that this was the need to procreate, which is why it was there. That's not the case. Are you saying it's not the case? No. I, I'm saying I think some of these have reasons that make sense to us. That's like, you know, if, sure, the need to procreate would, would have you have the rights of, let's say, when a woman is permitted to her husband, according to Halakha, when she's fertile. Right, you know, so definitely, it was about having children. It was about growing as a people, for sure. But the cultic things around homosexuality, and by the way, it's only men. 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 Yeah. 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 Just saying. Um, it's, <laughs> I got it. It's only men. Um, why? Why is it only men? Men were writing it. Women didn't count. Didn't really matter. It's like whatever. Like it's the rabbis talk about it as it's not seemly. But who really cares? Like we're not gonna waste a lot of time and energy on what women do. Who cares? Right? Um so so it's about men because men mattered. Um, and we see a lot of that with men um, in terms of living lives of holiness around sexuality, right? Pure and impure, right? There's lots of conditions that render a man impure, even though the act itself is commanded. So the, so the abomination part of one theory goes of men together is a power dynamic, that it is against the natural order for men to submit to other men that they are to be the dominant right they're supposed to dominate and and in the sexual act as well and so to flip that around is like uh, you're going into that crazy category that's why a woman can't wear men's clothing right that's here right it's that same you can't don't dress in the clothes of the other gender because that starts to blur some lines that makes everybody nervous okay Yes. When we're talking about this, it makes me think when we say well, the rabbis wrote this and women didn't count and women didn't matter, that it made me think of that there were areas that we didn't go to because weren't there sexual rituals and with virgin and, and all of that in the cultic time and the, uh, the ancient civilizations that surrounded our people and we didn't go there either. That we weren't going to do as well. Right. So I'd like to think that was protecting women. <laughs> what? Okay. Um, okay. I don't buy it. I don't buy it because because it's about men. That women's sexuality is owned by the husband or the father. 
That's why women are off limits. Because you then owe damages to the husband. He owns the rights to her sexuality or the father. Priests had wives, but they couldn't, they couldn't mess with somebody else's wife or daughter. Correct. Since we're going to get to Leviticus 19 in a couple of weeks and we get yeah, back we, to we food. Yeah, we can, we're going to, yes, we're going to go back to food. I want to go to, um, to, so to the idea that, that, that these, these categories of, of you can and you can't eat becomes, um, really about bringing awareness of holiness to every single time one consumes. Food is huge. Food is, you can't live without it. Some behaviors you can say, okay, whatever, I'll do it or I won't do it you know, in my whole life or every six years, right? The food, you're going to engage with that every single day, if you're lucky, several times a day. And so it's a way to say, at the most basic level, we bring awareness of who we are and what our commitments are to even the act of consumption of basic calories. That is an Israelite approach in a nutshell, right? To everything. That every single act can either be expressive of an intention to create a life of holiness or not. And that there's nothing wrong with our appetites, right? Physical for food, sexual, as, as beings and bodies, there, there's nothing wrong with our appetites to want. What we have to do is place limits on what we're allowed to do with that appetite. If we don't ever look at someone else's achievements and go, I want that, we might never become who we're intended to be. We might not reach our potential. So, so kind of being a little jealous, right, of what someone else is achieving can drive us to achieve. So there's nothing wrong with, with those instincts, with those desires, with those appetites, nothing. The trick is to fulfill them in a way that expresses and builds by repeatedly doing it, builds a life of holiness and a life that distinguishes us as a people, as an Am Kadosh, as a nation set aside to be a nation of priests. This is the point of all of this. And the opposite is this word, right? Sheketz or toeva is when you don't do that. And that, that's the, that's, those are the scales that are going to tip right one way or the other. And it's collective, right? That collectively we tip the scales one way or another, and the prophets always understood that when terrible things happened, it's because the scales got tipped, the out of balance, way out of balance. And I've been watching CNN the last couple of days and cannot, cannot help but think to myself, the scales like are, what have we wrought? Right? Like, what is going on with us that, w that this is what it's come to? And that's Israelite thinking. Right? Not just looking and saying, ugh, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's saying, what's going on with us? What's been happening? What have we failed to do? What are we failing to bring our powers of discrimination and distinction to bear on? that we have wound up with this. Yeah? Very Israelite. Very rabbinic. That it ain't one thing. Okay? And it's all of us who are implicated. It is all of us who bear responsibility for creating a society expressive of holiness and of the values that, that Torah speaks about. We can decide which of those still speak to us today. Um, I think the values, for the most part, do. Right? It's how how they are expressed that, that, that would be different today. Um, but w where have we failed to bring these values to bear on the decisions that we've made that leaves us in a society that feels 
to me, anyway, right now, um, pretty, pretty messy. Richard? On, uh, on the subject of, of distinguishing, mm -hmm. uh, it seems that uh, you know, the modern, modern Judaism, sort of like, you know, say, from the emancipation on, has, has created sort of greater and greater tension between traditional Orthodox and now even ultra-Orthodox, where it seems like constantly more and more things are being distinguished and you can do this, you can't do that. And the sort of the movement within liberal Judaism and Reconstructionist Judaism to say, okay, we no longer distinguish between this category and that category. Right? So there's there seems to be an, uh, an increasing acknowledgement of the autonomy of the individual to make those choices for themselves. Mm -hmm. But at what point, but in the midst of all this, does the, does the community still get a set? Right. In other words, can a, can a community tell an autonomous individual, you are wrong to make that distinction. You have to continue. If you want to stay in this community, you have to continue to make this distinction. So that is beautifully said, the difference between Reform and Reconstructionist Judaism. Beautifully said. That that is one of the main distinguishing factors between the two movements is Reform Judaism sees the individual as being completely autonomous mm -hmm. in all of those choices. Reconstructionism says, yes, in your home. In this house, it's the community's decision. And if you want to remain within the community, here's what that means. And different communities will decide what are the things that are important to them to say if you want to be here, right? That here's, here's kind of the line. And I think one of the main challenges, which you've articulated really well, to progressive Judaism is, I'm not sure how many lines we have. That, right, what do we say if you want to be part of this community, here's, here's how we understand ourselves, and here's what that means. What do we say? What, this is the conversation we were having um, at Hartman was, um, are there any heresies anymore? Right? What, what are we ready to call heretical to us? Not, not by any other definition. If we take all the, all the hoopla off that word, are there heresies for this community? I think yes. I would like to think yes. And intolerance is one of them. Right? Like that if you want to be part of this community and you're going to come in and say, uh, you don't get, you know, mm-mm, bye-bye. Right? That people are, you know, need to respect each other's <laughs> views and choices and whatever. So that's one of them. Do we, do we have others? I, I don't know. You know what's weird to me? I will tell you. That if you want to be in this community, you sit in this room and say, there is no God, and everybody goes, oh, Lisa's very, very interesting. <laughs> but if you say, so-and-so, who was born 2,000 years ago, is God, everyone goes, <clears throat> That's the line, I think, that we still have in Judaism. What do you think about that? So, so you're saying a line about, um, you, about belief? If you come a Reconstructionist Jew, you can say there is no God, and everybody sits there and smiles benignly mm -hmm. at you. But if you come into this room, to this study, and you say so-and-so, who was born 2,000 years ago, is God, you're going to be asked very quietly to so, so, keep your mouth shut or leave. So, so, so that is, the, the, you, won't, you won't be asked to leave, but you won't be identified as Jewish. Exactly. But you can say there's no God to be identified as Jewish. Correct. But if you say somebody else is God, Correct. Be because that is, remains a distinguishing factor, right? That belief is not a factor in terms of whether you believe in God, whether you believe in this, whether you, if you have a particular belief, that makes you now Christian. The other, yep. Right? So, it, because that is a religion of creed. And if that's your creed, then you've now read yourself out of, right? The, so the Jewish community. So, so, and it's interesting. It's a line for us. It's not a line for Jews for Jesus. That's true. Right. I had this argument with a, air quotes, rabbi <laughs> of a messianic <laughs> synagogue. 
He's, and we had, and I just thought at one point, I cannot believe I'm having this argument. But it's like, and what I finally said to him was, but we get to determine. I'm not saying it makes any sense. It doesn't have to. We as the Jewish people get to determine who's a Jew. Not you. Not you. So once you cross a certain line, I get it that y'all think that's fulfilled Judaism. But we say you are no longer Jewish if you believe that, right? And so, because he wanted to argue with me that I don't get to define for a Jew, right? Who's a Jew? Who's a Jew? And I'm like, uh, yeah, we got to do. Right? It's funny, I was following Richard's uh, reasoning down a different path than, okay. than the answer you gave. I, I was looking at that as saying the development, Richard, I mean, in, in the, between the eras, now, the modern era and the ancient era, which has gotten farther apart, where the, the ancient era, a community would expel someone who didn't literally follow the exact belief. And it seems modernity says, hey, we're individuals. There's no expulsion anymore. You can be and do whatever you want to do. I think you respond and say, no, in, in this community, we're, we're a community. We use, quote, expel you if you're intolerant. Did I misunderstand either side of this, this? Okay, I followed you till just that last statement. So I think, correct. I think Richard is saying there's less and less things that we say if you don't, and it's not belief. That, that was one example of a belief. But in general, none of this is about belief. This is about behavior. <laughs> so, if, if there, so there are behaviors that if you don't engage that in them or do the opposite of them or whatever, it would have put you, you know, outside the Israelite community. We don't live in those kinds of communities anymore. Right. And I think we all would agree there are some behaviors that we would say are beyond beyond what's acceptable. Could you, do you have an example, following Richard's thought, of what would be a distinguishing trait today that we... So, for, for example, I went to a conference yeah. of Jews at a reform conference. I got to the lunch line, and I'm taking my food, I'm taking my, my bagel, and my tuna, and my cheese, and my cream cheese, and then I get to the platter of meat. And I thought, okay, well, that's odd, right? There's, there's all this dairy, and then there's the trays of meat. So I went to the person who put together the conference, and I said, so I'm just, I'm not trying to start anything. I know I'm an outsider. I just have a question. Why is it that at a Jewish conference, right, I'm tripping along just fine, and all of a sudden have to make a decision, am I going to eat meat or dairy, at a Jewish conference, I feel like I should be able to go through the line and dafka this one place, not have to think about it. Like, whatever's out is going to follow at least broadly the concept of kashrut. And the answer was, because everybody gets to decide for themselves, do they want to eat meat or dairy for lunch today? Yeah. You didn't have to take the meat. What's your problem, right. essentially? So Reconstructionist Judaism would say, no way do you put out a platter of cheese and a platter of meat. No way. Never. You have your kid in the preschool here. They get their instruction. This is what you have to bring. So you are the equivalent of the ultra-Orthodox. Maybe. But it's, I never thought I was coming to an ultra I know, right? So it's a communal, it's a, because what it's saying is communally, when we eat together as Jews, we're not going to serve shrimp cocktail. Even if people eat that, we're not going to serve it. In this building, by the way, you can't bring trafe in here. We like it that way, right? Because it doesn't matter what people do at home. They are free to do what they do at home. We don't judge what people do, truly. We don't. We want people to make their own good choices about their own lives, whatever that looks like. Here, communally, when we eat together in this space, it, it follows broadly, very broadly, some understandings about kashrut. And that, we was, that was the decision of the community, not Correct. That was the decision of the community to have that be. There are. <laughs> this was the religious practices committee, and I, I was involved in getting this policy together, which was done a number of years ago. And we did a bunch of research. You're talking about the Reconstructionist movement. 
most Reconstructionist synagogues, we found out, are vegetarian only. Because it's not just an issue of mixing of, of meat and milk, of which there's, you know, how far do you go, blah, blah, blah. There's all kinds of questions of that. There's a question of kosher meat. Who says it's kosher? And do we accept and support the, that particular rabbinic authority? Because kosher meat doesn't come from heaven and just <laughs> all out of it. Kosher meat is meat that a rabbi somewhere, an orthodox one, has said this meat is kosher. So there, there are a lot of different senses and feelings about that, but nobody who was involved said we couldn't have some, we shouldn't be kosher in some, in some sense. And the, the reason behind it was because we felt that this, we wanted to have a sacred space in this building. And part of that, whether it wasn't so much that God said so, but it was tradition, it was definition of Judaism, we wanted to do that, and also as an educational tool. Right. And it really worked. I mean, my two-year-old yeah. is now 20, mm -hmm. and it is something that there, there is an identity that came from that. It's not the identity mm -hmm. the Orthodox mm -hmm. kids have, and so there was a culture shock, but, that, but at least there was, there was an awareness. There was something and a respect that we don't do that because there may be other people that have more stringent beliefs, and this way we've got something that everyone can be comfortable with. This, this, if, you've ever, if you've ever talked to people who are kosher, okay, there's a question of, are you kosher in? Are you kosher out? Are you kosher only in your home? Right. You know, I know some people who are very they were kosher right. in their home, and then they go out to a Chinese restaurant, you know, and have shrimp. And for them, that was completely consistent. Right. Because because we each Hello. make those distinctions for ourselves. Pam, then Linda? I was going to say that uh, the whole issue of eating is um, uh, then and now a struggle in terms of ethical issues mm -hmm. of you know eating animals or um, how they're kept and how how much we how how little other people have all these. There's so much around food and how to eat it and with elevating blessing the food and drawing closer to God um, that in Jewish literature it's often uh, spoken of um, that eating is the hour of war. Uh, I think it's uh, milchama is the word for war, is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's the same shorish as lechem, mm -hmm. bread. So I just think that's such a, an interesting how we, we're really supposed to do it consciously in so many ways. And having these distinctions help us to, to do that by elevating it, not just... And, and how many wars are started because people don't have food, right? I mean, that is, that is one of the basic reasons for war in the ancient world, and even now, right? Scarce resources leads you to take someone else's farm, right? Because you need to eat and, um, and awareness. So, so partly going back to this and moving to that is what are our communal understandings to your point, Richard, of distinctions that might hold meaning for us based on the values of Torah, if not the behaviors of Torah, right? So that's where I think progressive Judaism could be leaning in harder and doing more because yes, I think those distinctions have fallen away in terms of, of the behaviors of Torah. But I like to believe that the values of Torah should be informing way more conversation about proper consumption. I mean, in this building, we don't use single use water bottles, Yay. right? We have these on the Bima. They're hideous, but, um, <laughs> But we, we try to send, we try to educate, we try to send a message that we don't use single-use plastic in this building, right? We, we have a stance in this building on downstairs in the ECC, chemicals that are only environmentally, meaning to people too, friendly, um, right? And, and recycling and terracycling, which is upcycling, and, and really putting in our children an awareness that there are ethical concerns around consumption and our behaviors around consumption. And I feel like we could be doing more to really lean in. Um, but if you look at the Coalition on the Environment and Judaism, um, Kojo, their website, there's amazing materials that take texts from Torah and completely reread them as being 
absolutely about the environment, absolutely about our behavior around consumption. Diane? I was very interested, interesting for me because when I converted, uh, my husband is being Jewish and from Hungary. I went to his house and his mother was serving cold cuts with ham. Yet when I wanted to take a utensil from that girl, you can't use that. Oh, wow. It was such a long time to figure out what kosher means. <laughs> she said, well, I didn't cook. <laughs> oh, he doesn't cook the ham. But, I don't know if you explain that, but it's But the fact is that it was so hard for me for many years because it doesn't because it doesn't it doesn't make sense, right? If you don't grow up with it, it doesn't make sense. And that's part of the point. It doesn't make sense. Well, she's that's distinguishes. Right? She distinguishes. Um, it, it doesn't make sense, and it's not supposed to, in terms of these behaviors. In terms of cultic behaviors, it doesn't need to make sense. That's part of the power of it. You do it because that's what we Jews do. Right? Um, again, back to, you know, Richard, what you were saying is, those, I think, are no longer compelling outside of orthodoxy. That it keeps us a distinct people, I think, remains compelling and is why some of us do the kashrut behaviors that we do. It's about a positive identification with the Jewish people. Um, but I do think we should be coming up with more, dis, more distinctions between things based on val- Jewish values that we consider to be okay or not okay. Right. That, I was just going to say I was raised by civil rights people, so I, mean, I was raised with the values every day. And, the, and when I came to KI, even when at the preschool, it was a little bit, it was, of course, everything goes. A lot of people weren't Jewish or didn't have a Seder. But, and I sort of wanted to know, well, what are our values here? Mm-hmm. That was never clear as a member. <laughs> Uh, oh, good. Honestly, it wasn't. <laughs> right, right. And I was raised so much with the with the values. And even when I was a kid going to the lunch line, it was a little bit, oh, they've got ham today. No, I'm Jewish. I can't do that. I don't need to tell them, but I'm a little bit distinct. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go in the other line, or I won't eat today. I'll just have to wait till I get home. So that all of those things do fit together. But I think the important point for us is, what are our values here? What is it that we have that sets us apart? Right. And it's and with a huge community, mm-hmm. it gets trickier and trickier to figure out what that is. Who is we? Is it Who is we? Is it a right? A thousand families with everything from conservative Republicans to Blanche and Rubin? Right? <laughs> 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 um, so you say that with love. I say that 100% with love because those are my values. Right, I was raised by Right, civil rights, you know, <laughs> de- Democrat, you know, progressive, liberal, all those words in my home were holy words. That, those, that's the sacred. That's the sancta right there, right? Other folks are really conservative and really on the other end of a lot of those issues um, in our community. And it, it makes articulating our values super tricky. Um, well, the values <coughs> not going to be respect. Correct. In other words, just because people don't agree with me, I feel that I'm really good about that, is I'm very respectful, and I think you have to, you know, that has to be one of them is respect. For so which takes me back to intolerance, right? You know, so that if we can't respect each other's difference of opinion, for me, I feel like that... That's a heresy, right? Because we can't function then if people aren't safe. Richard? What a, so what a potentially useful word in this discussion when we're talking about, for example, distinguishing and kashrut and eating and things like that is the ever more popular notion of mindfulness mm-hmm. in the sense of that if you, know, if you want, you know, what's mindful eating other than you know, not only deciding what you're eating, but thinking about where it came from, what the chain of production was, all that sort of stuff, and not sort of like, you know, you can, you could be as kosher as you want and still 
down your sandwich in 10 seconds with that. Ah, now, now you hit, now you hit on the eternal struggle within a tradition. Because now you're talking the prophets versus the priests. Is this the fast I want? Right? We read it every Yom Kippur because we canonize our critics. Right? So the prophet Isaiah asks, right? Yeah, you, your sandwich is kosher, but you wolf it down in front of somebody who's starving. So does your kashrut, do you, do you get to check the box? The priests say, technically, yeah. And the prophets say, no what's the point? Right? That you've just breached so many of what we consider core Jewish values in doing that, that who cares if your sandwich was kosher? Choke on it. Right? And, um, sorry, I got a little animated there. Um, <laughs> um, th- that remains attention, right? For all. For all of us, um, whatever, wherever we draw those lines is lines are helpful for to keep us thinking about stuff. And and that's good. Boundaries are good and rules for ourselves are good. Right. I now eat. I make a shake before I leave the house. I gave up coffee. I'm now having a shake before I leave every single day. Right. There's a line. I'm not crossing it because if I do, like it's going to mess me up. Right. So and that's a commitment I've made to myself and my health and my family in this community. That's great. Only lines don't, they're good and they support good habits and good things. It, it can't just be lines, say the prophets, right? It has to go to the broader values and staying aware of what's operating, right, in, in other ways. Um, you have to have both. You have to have both. And, and there's a tension often be, between those. Correct. That's exactly correct. Keeping kosher is supposed to support good habits that lead us to be more careful in what we say. If we're careful about what we eat, right, it's supposed to help us attach to other parts of our peoplehood, which says, right, you don't speak negatively about other people. And the challenge is that often the one does not lead to the other, right? It becomes for its own sake, and I'm righter than you, and kosherer than you, and my my hashgacha is stricter than your hashgacha, and so my meat is kosherer than your meat, right? And when that starts, that is not only not the point; it is against Jewish values, right? To to be all all about me and what I eat and how good I am and and all that, Pam. eating an animal that uh, regurgitates its food, that it's an illusion for us to examine and re-examine our actions. Lovely. Um, I've got, uh, is somebody ready to run to the copier? That would be lovely. Um, I've got something I copied. It's either on the copier or on my desk. Yes, this is why I should not get here early. I think think I'm quoting Mordecai Kaplan. Okay. Either that or Rabbi Rubin. (laughs) (laughs) Mahav deal. No, same thing. He said um, that the important thing is to be able to take the Torah seriously without taking it literally. And the values thing, because the, the other piece is do we have to make up our own values? Do we just make them up as we go? It's nice to say everything I do should be guided by values. To me, and this is part of the value of Reconstructionist Judaism, is it saying the value thing is very important and the place you find them is in Torah and Jewish tradition. You don't have to make it all up yourself. But you don't have to take it literally. And then the challenge becomes, how how do you do that? Right. Well, hey, there there are parts we want to take literally. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, right. you know, you shall not stand on your neighbor's blood, right? That we want to take that literally. Don't do that, <laughs> right? You know, really don't do that. Um, the Ten Commandments, right? There's some we want to take literally and, and certainly other parts of it from which we derive meaning that is not attached to the uh, fundamental truth. So By the way, footnote, if anybody wants to see the KI Kashrut policy, it's on our website. Because we know you're dying, too. It's on, it's on our, no, no, it's actually very interesting. It's on our website. <laughs>
I, go to um, go to chapter uh, eleven, verse forty-two. Page six forty-two in the red book. If you look at the Hebrew, you don't have to speak Hebrew or no Hebrew, but I want you to look at the Hebrew. Verse 42, yes? Yes. Kol holech al gachon. One, two, three, four words in, yes? Gachon. You see that word? Yes. Everything that uh, walks on its belly. Big vav. Big vav. <laughs> Big vav there. That, that word... It got gone. Um, that word, gachon, is the absolute center of the Torah. Is that why the Vav is big? That's one of the reasons. The letter Vav, the actual letter, that's the center of the Torah. Correct. That Vav is the middle letter of the Torah. Is there an odd number of letters? I hope so. <laughs> Must be, right? Okay. So, but but the next thing I'm going to do, because I got a few parlor tricks today, um, the next thing I'm going to do is prove that, according to Jory's insightfulness, uh, there must be an even number of words in the Torah. This is letters. This is the middle letter. This vav in gachon is written large in every single Torah. And it is the middle letter of the Torah. And it's describing why we shouldn't eat things that slither on their bellies, the thing I copied for you, and because my original... Okay, Linda. Got him. Yeah, it's not good for me to get here too early. Uh, so... This middle letter goes to this practice of not eating things that creep and along uh, Pam's lines, because the rabbis love to find reasons why these are spiritual values, right? These categories actually have spiritual meaning, because it's the rabbis, right? They, that's what they do. They play with this stuff. Um, so Rabbi Yael Shai looks at a tradition, right, around this as well. And I'm... Uh, on the page that has verses 43 and 44 at the top. In emphasizing the abomination of associating with creeping creatures. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. <laughs> A fool's errand. Uh, <laughs> In emphasizing the abomination of associating with creeping creatures, God seems to be telling us to stop making ourselves small and insignificant. Stop erasing ourselves, bringing ourselves low, making ourselves defiled and dirty and less than. This is a powerful and important message for a newly freed slave population habituated to thinking of themselves as lowly, as, as lowly and disposable. Yeah? We were not just brought out of slavery. We were brought up from the land of narrowness. The movement is one of being raised up out of the muck, made in the image of holiness and being holy ourselves. What keeps us from absorbing this message? I think a lot. Draw, turn your paper over and go to the second paragraph. Rabbi Alan Liu argues that when God and Moshe repeatedly tell the Israelites not to be afraid in the Torah, they use the phrase altire, which is related to nora, a fear, right? Nora, we've talked about awesome, being awesome, right? A fear associated with coming into contact with energy or power that we are not accustomed to. A new strength announces itself. A new energy bristles through our body, Lou writes. <clears throat> nora is trying to push us open, the fear we experience at such times is simply our resistance to this opening. Right? So she's exploring a couple of things. If we're supposed to like not eat these things that crawl in their belly because God is saying, you know, you're not lowly, you're not nothing, you are holy, you are created in the divine image. Live into that. So the question becomes, why don't we? 
What's our problem? Why do we still get stuck, right, in these behaviors that keep us, or attitudes that keep us crawling around in the muck? And so a lot of people suggest fear. And so she's, she's bringing this <clears throat> quote from Rabbi Lou to say she agrees that it's fear. What's the fear? The fear of being pushed open. That when we really live into our power, when we really live in, in power in a good sense, when we really live into our holiness, when we really own the image of God within each one of us, that we are each a daughter of the queen, a son of the king, then what can't we do? And we get terrified of pushing open like that. We get really scared about like what that means. Linda? People get terrified of the responsibility that also them. Right? To move to a higher level. Absolutely. People are afraid of being visible because when you are visible, you are open to criticism yes. or being seen as less. Yes. Or I didn't do it right. Right? Um, I, I could be wrong. I, you know, leadership is one of the terrors of leadership, right? Is what if I do it wrong? Then what? And now I've put myself out there. What about that kind Doing it wrong. <laughs> right? Right? Exactly. When I sit up straight and walk tall with shoulders back and my heart exposed to the world, I feel the incredible power and terror of Nora. It is a practice of making myself both vulnerable and strong. It helps me to speak and act from my center and heart. Although at times it feels more comfortable and more familiar to curl up and collapse into the darkness and hiding, I can hear God whispering to me, you are holy. Don't defile yourself crawling around on the ground. Stand up, speak from the gut, heart out, shine on. Um, so that is our middle letter of the Torah, that Vav. That is Rabbi Yael Shai's teaching based on other teachers, of course, of, of what this belly business is about. If you go to verse, t- chapter 10, verse 16. Mm-hmm. Chapter 10, <laughs> verse 16. We're going to close with this. Chapter 10, verse 16 says, Aha. So, chapter 10, verse 16. hachatat. You see the Hebrew? hachatat darosh darash. You see one, two, three, four words in. Words four and five of that sentence. You see those? Darosh darash. 635 in the red. 635 in the red. Last year. Those are the two middle words of the Torah. We just looked at the middle letter. These, if you count words, are the middle words. So going to Jory's logic, because there are two of them, that tells us there are an even number of words in the Torah. These are the center two. Why do I love this? And I should teach this in B'Shem Omrah in the name we never teach unless we teach in the name of our teacher or we're stealing. Uh, and so my teacher this week was my Chavruta partner, Rabbi Hannah Lehner of Boulder, Colorado. And she taught me this, uh, that these are the center words in this week's Parsha of the, of the Torah. Why was this such a great conversation? Yes. Go for it. So this Shoresh, Dalit Resh Shin, Drash. What is Drash? Interpretation, expounding. Interpretation, expounding. In this case, your English translation says, Then Moses inquired. Darash, right? Doresh, Darash. So he drashed. In this case, means seeks to understand. So from seeking to understand, from inquiry, we've now, you know, years and years and centuries and, and millennia later, this word now means to unpack, right? To interpret, to expound. Why did I love this? Because if you see this as a teeter-totter, 
<laughs> right? You put this little triangular block between those. The whole Torah literally hinges on this drash and this drash. That we are a people that understands, as we've said, that Elu elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. Shivim panim la Torah. There are 70 faces to the Torah. We are not a people that says, let's vote. And then when we vote and have the answer, which is what the rabbis do, um, <laughs> we say, okay, that's the answer that's going in the book. We vote, we have the answer, we write it down, and then we write down the minority dissenting opinion. Always. Always. Why? This is true today, right, for me in this moment. And who knows? And somebody else's point is just as valid. Their viewpoint is just as valid. It may not be the one that wins the day in terms of deciding what we do, but it is on the page. We surround the text with argument. That's what a Talmud is. The text is in the middle and everything around it is arguing because that's how we get to truth. That's how we get to what we're supposed to do. It, this, you know, how we're supposed to figure this mess out is to continually drosh, to inquire and to continue to put forward with the courage that that takes our answers, to listen respectfully to the ones, the answers that are different from ours because the whole thing hinges on gam vagam. This and that. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.